Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, good morning. It's been a good morning. Great to worship together and uh, just our hearts united in our adoration of God. So we're going to turn this morning again a uh, third time to Mark chapter 7. And uh, I've done this very deliberately at both campuses and it has been my intention to convey something of the importance of spiritual health in our lives as individuals, but also together as we serve uh, in the local church. And so do follow with me. Um, I'm going to read the entire passage or the entire 23 verses again, but we will focus on uh, verse 16 uh, through to verse 23. So chapter 7 and verse 1 from Mark's gospel. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, Uh, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So verse 14 is where we're going to pick up the passage today. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. 
just so far, reading of God's Word. Lord, we do bow our heads once again as a, uh, an indication that we come in dependence on you. And Lord, our desire is to be in submission to you, that which you have revealed and taught and enabling us even this morning, we pray to apply into our hearts, into the daily conduct of our lives, the faith that we seek to express and live. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work, Lord, through the preaching of your word, through the reception of your word in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage does say a lot about food, and so I did want to introduce the passage this morning to you by acknowledging that most of us here, but this morning I would imagine, believe that the food we eat does not have any bearing. It does not have any effect on our purity, on our impurity uh, before God. Food we believe in the day that we live uh, in our context, does not affect our relationship with God. I think that's generally an understanding among us. To go a little bit further, perhaps we could say that most of us eat bacon and pork sausages. Perhaps Saturday morning, give yourself a treat and, and, and prepare a special breakfast. Those of you who don't eat bacon and pork sausages are probably more concerned about your cholesterol level rather than it being any kind of effect on your standing with God. I think I'm right in saying that. There may be some, of course, among us today who are not concerned about purity or righteousness or holiness and, 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 and a standing before God. This passage to you this morning may be, well, a confrontation that took place between the Pharisees and Jesus many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and, and therefore is irre irrelevant and, and does not have any bearing, any uh, regard to where we stand with God, and it's old-fashioned and outdated. Well... I want us to look at this passage today, and to begin with, I want us to consider and answer a question regarding the importance of purity. I want us to think about, think about you personally and even us as individuals, you standing before God, how important is it that you are righteous or pure or holy? And so the first point I want us to consider looking at this passage is why should you care about purity? Why is it an issue that we are even raising in this particular sermon? Why is it an issue that I felt important to preach at the beginning of a new year uh, coming together as a congregation? Well, as we look at this passage, we see that the Pharisees, these religious men and probably women alongside of them and around them, certainly knew that there was uh, a need to be pure, to be clean, to be holy before God. We find this in verse 5. We see their practice. The Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders but eat with defiled hands? You, 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 they're concerned. They're concerned about they are doing something. Why aren't these disciples doing something to equip themselves, to prepare themselves to be able to stand before God? 
their background in the scriptures certainly left no doubt in their minds as to the nature of God. The nature of God and in this particular instance the abhorrence that God has of evil, of unrighteousness, of sin. So we read in Exodus chapter 30, the, uh, a background that they would be familiar with, verse 20. When they go, that is the priests, into the tent of meeting, that is to meet God, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water. You see, the, the understanding is we need to do something to be clean, to be pure before God. The verse carries on, they're doing this so that they may not die. The danger of coming to God before God in any kind of unprepared, unclean way. That's not isolated. Uh, Old Testament teaching, Moses experienced uh, something similar in his encounter with God. Burning bush experience. And, and he comes before God and, and the response from God is, is, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the Jews generally understood that there was something about the nature of God that prevented them from coming in, in a way that they were unprepared. They knew that because of God's fearful and holy presence, there was a need, there was a need uh, for them to be right. Uh, they knew something of the awesomeness of God only going as close, even in some instances, as they were allowed. I want to go to another passage in the Old Testament to show you that this was a general understanding. It was the experience with God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah enters into the temple and there is this vision, the experience of an encounter and the vision of seeing God. And we read of what he uh, sees in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. Uh, the seraphim, one calling to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is affected. He responds. The well-known verse in, 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 in that chapter, verse 5, woe to me for I'm lost. In other words, he recognizes that he's in trouble. There's a concern for I am a man of unclean lips. He sees that he's unable and, 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 and not in a, a place where he can connect and, and be relationally acceptable to God. I dwell amongst or in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Pharisees recognized, I believe we need to recognize and admit this morning that the moral holiness of God is such that it demands purity. There is a demand from God for holiness for anyone that enters into his presence. But there's something more. It's not just holiness in the sense of moral purity, but they knew also that, that, that holiness or holy also meant that God was separate, that God was Unique, that there was no one like God. 
The, the word holy can actually uh, be interpreted to cut or to separate, to be uh, uh, perhaps a, a more accurate contemporary understanding would be to, to be a cut above something else. Now I thought of a, an illustration. I don't know if it will work. I'm looking to see some of the younger people and what sneakers they're wearing this morning. But I was standing in a queue uh, with my two daughters at an airport, and we were waiting to board a plane. And I noticed uh, in front of us a young lady with sneakers on, and uh, to me they looked a bit odd, because they had platforms. And I'm a runner, and I wondered to myself, how do you run 21 kilometers with tackies with a platform? Well, my daughter educated me, and she said to me, Dad, you don't know. Those are very, very exclusive and expensive sneakers. So anyway, I asked her this morning to give me the name again. Nike Air Forces. Older people, you have no clue, neither do I. But I want to tell you this. If you have a pair of Nike Air Forces, you are a cut above everybody else with sneakers, because they're buying their sneakers at pep stores. Pep stores only charge 99 rand for a pair of sneakers, and Nike Air Forces will cost you between two and a half and three thousand rand. Do, 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 do you see what I'm trying to say? There are some things in life, in our human experience, that are a cut above the rest. And so we need to take that illustration and apply it to our understanding of God, where God is a cut above the rest. There is no one like God. In theology, we use the word to describe that of God, transcendent. God transcends our understanding. God transcends anything that we can describe or even uh, begin to, to, to complete, completely comprehend. And so when we speak of the transcendence of God, we're talking about something about God that is beyond us. Supreme in excellence. God who is absolute in his greatness. And, and so when we, we think of ourselves as coming to this God who is incomparable and unique, and this God who has a relationship to the world where he is higher and greater and more majestic, where the world has no power over him, but he has power over the world. And so there is this transcendence of God which brings about a consuming majesty and exalted loftiness. The infinite distance in reality that separates him from us and every any, and any other creature. Moral holiness on the one hand. And on the other hand, a transcendence that we cannot even have the vocabulary to describe. And to some extent, we see the Pharisees knew something of this, and they were concerned to be clean before this God so that they can approach him, that they can be acceptable uh, to him. And in fact, not just the Pharisees. We look to the New Testament, and we find there too the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, have eternal consequences because of who God is in terms of his holy nature. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 as he who called you is holy. You see there the nature of God. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
The Apostle Paul takes it a little bit further. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, we're going to have to stand before this God. This God who is infinitely holy, this God who is indescribably transcendent, this God who is not accountable to us, but we are accountable to him, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so I am wanting to urge on us, on you this morning, there is an importance to be concerned about the things we do. There is a, a concern that we ought to have about our moral condition before this holy and transcendent God. We ought to be thinking about these things that we do in the body, whether good or bad, are going to be exposed before God, are exposed before God. Which leads me to a second question. Where does impurity come from? It is everywhere, is it not? I was reminded of the depravity of man again just the other night. Uh, again, my daughters they introduced me to a series on television on uh, the entitled The Rise of the Empires, and the particular series we were watching was The Rise of the Ottoman Empire. And as I was watching this series, uh, there is a particular episode where a certain person by the name of Vlad Dracula, he's at war with the Sultan Mehmed. Uh, Mehmed was one of the uh, great conquerors that actually took over Constantinople after hundreds of years of Christian occupation and, and, and changed it from Constantinople to Istanbul. So he was a, a great warrior and he did it at the age of 21. But it wasn't long after there he, after there he was at war with this fellow Vlad Dracula. Well, Vlad, Vlad Dracula, and I checked this out on Google, uh, earned the reputation of being Vlad the Impaler. Why did he earn that reputation? It was because he became known as the expert of being able to put a spear through somebody from behind, being able to miss all their vital organs, with that spear coming out somewhere up here, I'm not quite sure, that, that person then being planted in a public space, hanging on that spear, and suffering because those vital organs are still operating for a certain uh, space of time before they died. And he did that with delight. Where does that come from? Now, it's not just murder. It's, it's not just Hitler and the Holocaust. But people, us people around, have a problem 
of sin. We have a problem of doing bad things, evil things, unclean things, unrighteous things. And, and where does that come from? The thoughts you think, the behavior that you've done, that, you've ashamed, that you're ashamed of, the, the, the commands of God that you've failed, that you've fallen short of. Now there are theories. There are many theories that have come about over the years, and, and certainly I just mentioned some of them. Uh, uh, some would suggest, well, uh, a learned behavior pattern. In other words, if you have bad friends, you're going to do bad things. Well, yes, to some degree that's true. In our context, in, on our continent in Africa, it, it is said that poverty often leads to desperation and doing evil, uh, robbery or murder, uh, Others suggest, no, if, 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 if people were only uh, improved in their levels of education, that would eradicate sinfulness or impurity or the evil that is done. Sometimes it, it, it is said it is because of particular abuse, uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse in the context of the family produces uh, Conduct that is unbecoming in the later years of somebody's life. Well, some of those things have certain elements of truth. But Jesus here has a different answer to the question, where does evil, where does bad behavior, where does sinful behavior come from? Have a look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, Jesus here is identifying in the first instance a false theory. You need to correct your thinking. Not only the Pharisees, but we today need to adjust our thinking away from this false theory. In their instance, the belief that some foods that you eat can make you unclean before God. Verse 18, he said to them, Then are you also without understanding, this is not to the disciples, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? He declared all foods clean. Food is not the thing that you need to be concerned about. And so he goes on and he clarifies and he shows the true source where is this evil coming from? Why is Vlad Dracula delighting in impaling men and women on a spear? Why is it that we disobey and, and are rebellious in our, uh, to our parents and, and, and perhaps even sometimes to the government and to society, but even before God? And he said to them in verse 20, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Folk, we must not make excuses about sinful behavior from other sources. The actual source, the original source. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts. And here is a list. And, and the list is, is, is a huge list, but it's not comprehensive. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. You wonder when you're just lying there innocently and suddenly something enters your mind, where does this come from? 
sexual immorality and, and theft and, and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy, slander. Do you, you see what, what, what Jesus, Jesus is making this huge list of, of, of different conduct, different behavior, different sinfulness. And he's saying all of this stuff and more, all of these evil things, verse 23, comes from within. And they defile a person. As those who believe the Scriptures, the authority of Scriptures, we must accept what God is teaching us, that there is within every person, every person, a fountain of wickedness, often referred to in the Bible as the heart or the sinful nature. By heart, it's not the physical organ, but we're speaking about the center of someone's being, that part that moves us and motivates us and, and leads us in deliberation and intention, in disobedience to the things and to the ways of God. And so, so every one of us human beings, every single person on this earth has a major internal problem. Whether, whether you are young or old, you have this problem. We have this, men and women. And our hearts are ever ready to burst out with uncleanness. Sin, always crouching at the door. Now this is radical thinking in, in, in our day, in 2023. It's, 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 it's unacceptable thinking in, in most circles because in our humanistic society, uh, there is the belief, there is the conviction that humankind is intrinsically good. People are basically good. Jesus doesn't believe that, doesn't teach that. Like Jeremiah of the Old Testament, who puts it very succinctly, cuts away that kind of thinking that people are basically good and describes, clearly describes the heart of man as a problem. Jeremiah puts it this way, chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And not just Jeremiah, we find the Apostle Paul grappling with his own sinfulness and, and the struggle that he experienced from within. Wretched man that I am, he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, who will deliver me from the body of death? Which leads me to my next question. Can impurity be eradicated? Now, the Pharisees believed the problem could easily be solved. They, they had a solution, and their particular solution we see in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? So they had developed a means of people being able to prepare themselves by simply sprinkling water or using water to wash their hands, to wash certain in implements. All you need to do, they're thinking, Sprinkle a bit of water over your hands and you'll be clean and you'll be able to access the favorable presence of God. But all it was was outward action. 
It was legalistic action. The focus was on outward ritual, on behavior modification. Do these certain things, and that will equip you and prepare you, enable you to access God. We can also fall into that particular trap. Because very often, even in our context of the Christian community, we can be comfortable. We can be comfortable what I would call the delusion of focusing in on outward ritual and conduct as a means of being pure and acceptable to God. And we neglect the state of our hearts. Remember earlier on in the passage, Jesus had quoted Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In other words, the outward expression of religious activity and ritual is meaningless. It's, it's vain. It, it, it doesn't accomplish anything of eternal value. And so we must not get this back to front. A Christian, a Christian is not someone who does certain prescribed things. Often we judge other people. Often we judge ourselves by answering questions about, am I praying enough? Am I attending church services regularly? Am I participating in a communion service often enough? Have I been baptized? Have I got a church membership certificate? Have I stopped swearing? Have I stopped abusing alcohol? Have I eliminated my body piercing? Yeah, yeah, these are questions. These are issues. These are activities we think by either doing or not doing. We are preparing ourselves for acceptable presence, uh, acceptable uh, uh, presence in before God. Those of you who know anything about Islam, they have what they call the seven pillars, and if if you practice or adhere to the seven pillars, then you are considered to be a Muslim in good standing, acceptable before God, and this kind of outward expression or ritual or salvation by works is actually no different. What is Jesus saying to us this morning? Apart from radical internal change of heart, all of what we do or attempt to do is futile. It's a waste of time. It is a fatal spiritual pitfall to believe that the solution to sin and defilement can be addressed by outward action. Can't. If there's no internal change, it's to no avail. So religious ritual does not contribute to your or my purity before God. The religious ordinances, the sacraments, however we want to define them, baptism, the Lord's Supper, education, culture, social reform, behavior modification, not going to solve the heart condition of a sinful person. So can impurity be eradicated? Of course, and that's, that's the good news of the gospel. There is a solution. And, and again, Jesus describing that solution, we, we have called it regeneration. Folk, there's no power in the world that can change a sinful heart 
other than God himself as he works by his spirit. Do we believe that? Do we practice that? There has to be a radical new birth. Jesus put it so plainly to Nicodemus. I say to you, John chapter 3, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's internal change. Old Testament analogy, and I love it because it's so descriptive. Only God can take the heart of stone of a blood Dracula and replace it with the heart of flesh and make it into a John Newton. And write the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Or the New Testament analogy, needing to be, as Paul describes, we are new creatures as believers, those who have been born again, new creation in Christ. Only God can bring it about. So can impurity be eradicated? Can you stand before God? Can I stand before God as acceptable and, and, and received into his presence? Yes. Wonderfully, yes. But not because of outward change or legalism. Not by conforming to lists of do's and don'ts. You need a sin solution of God's design and God's making, which is my fourth point this morning. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is a gift from God. Folk, we have a serious internal sin problem. You will give an account, I will give an account to God, to this holy, transcendent God, for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And so considering this predicament, how are we to proceed? How can we be encouraged? How can we face the future of an eternal destiny somewhere? Well, we need to see that we are totally dependent on God to intervene for the rescue we need. And there's good news. He has intervened. We often speak of the gospel. The gospel is good news. Why is it good news? It is because God has intervened. Jesus Christ is the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's, there's a gift given. There's good news uh, uh, for, for a sinful people. He has secured rescue, saving from this dilemma through what we describe as the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. And it has to be a substitutionary death because anything we do is inadequate. But he being perfectly righteous receives in our place the punishment from God and is able to give a gift that is secured that we need of righteousness. The Holy Spirit applying that redemption into the hearts of individual people, many of you even here this morning, but perhaps some not. God has provided righteousness. God has provided the purity, cloak of righteousness that he demands from us as sinful people. And there's a lot that can be said on the subject because there is uh, the process of justification, the declaration of, of being not guilty because of the righteousness of Christ. There is also the, the description and, and work of sanctification that we need to understand, which comes about because of this internal change that God has uh, undertaken and, and, and working out in the life of a believer. 
But where I want to go this morning and, and the impress on your hearts as we move into this year of ministry, what is your responsibility in this important issue of being pure before God? Your responsibility and mine is to acknowledge and confess that sin is sin. Your sin or other people's sin. We mustn't duck and dive and excuse and eradicate and bury our heads in the sand. Sin is sin. Acknowledge that in your own life, even that if that sin be thoughtfulness that is leading you astray and disobeying and leading you to impurity. But to turn from that sin, the Bible talks about repentance and reaching out to God by the, uh, by the means of faith. And it's believing that Jesus has done this and receiving the gift believing it and and accepting it, believing that Jesus has done this for you. But it comes with an attitude of dependence. God, salvation is from you. It's a gift that you've either given to me already and many of us, or it's a gift that I need as I stand here today. And so total dependence on God for salvation and everything in life and godliness. And so a list that I've just put together very quickly. To receive a new heart, you need God to help and intervene. To persevere in faith. If you've been a believer for 30 or 40 years, you cannot do it on your own. You need God's help going forward. To grow in holiness as God molds you and forms you, you need God's help. To do evangelism, you need God's help. To make disciples, we need God's help. To do good works, we need God's help. Did you get the idea to, to obey God, to be a godly husband, or to be a submissive and godly wife? You need God's help. To face God in death, you need God's help. In all things, even as we take responsibility, we need to depend on God completely. May we at Central have a mindset, an attitude, an approach similar to that of a hymn that I'm going to quote and we're going to sing it. A hymn that was written by Augustus Top Lady, well-known hymn, perhaps more so to the older people, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Listen to these words. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Jesus is the, is the answer, is the solution, is the provision from God. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. The best we do doesn't cut it. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, that's the cloak of righteousness. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I, I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. You see the desperation, the understanding that this hymn writer had. I stand in need of the benefits that Jesus secured on the cross of Calvary. Without that, I'm done. Just the last verse. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes, when my eyelids close in death, 
when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Oh, Father, may we see this wonderful gift that you have given, provided, secured, that your Holy Spirit is applying to us, has applied to many hearts, and we pray will continue to apply to many hearts, even here this morning. And may Jesus constantly be the one that we stand, believe, knowing that he indeed is the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.